0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Baronda Montgomery about her new book, Lessons from
0: Plants welcome to the show. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Yes. Well, tell us, tell us about yourself, Dr. Montgomery.
0: So I am currently a professor um, of plant sciences at Michigan State University, but I always like to share that I'm a a woman from the South. I grew up in Arkansas, spending a lot of time in nature uh, from a big family with brothers and sisters. And that's a real core of who I am as well. Um, But currently I study plant biology, um, how plants respond to their environmental cues at Michigan State. And as a part of that work, have the great opportunity to work with a lot of students and other colleagues in collaborative and collective fashion to understand these organisms.
1: So in your book, Lessons from Plants, there's there's the baseline understanding of kind of how plants work and thrive, but then you start connecting it to us as humans and society. Tell us kind of how you came about to write this book.
0: Yeah, so it is an interesting story in a lot of ways because I would imagine that it's not an expected kind of book for a plant biochemist or plant biologist to write in terms of focusing on what we can learn from plants. Um, But I've been very interested in plants for the past 25 years or so as an organism of study. But it's also... um, kind of a unique position for me amongst my amongst my family to be a scientist, to be an academician, and to have a life committed uh, to the study of, of any kind of biological organism. Uh, many of my family members are um, in a kind of business arena. They're entrepreneurs, they're in service indices. Uh, such as um, you know, I have some nurses and other people in my family. So it's a little bit of an oddity for me to have a life so deeply committed um, to an area of study such as plants. And so over the years, I've been really intentional about wanting to bring back some of the knowledge and enthusiasm that I have from my work to communities that I'm in, like my family and other communities that don't study that. So part of the trying to make um, the ways in which I discuss plants accessible started there, part of the lessons from plants, the really what can we learn about plants came from that, but it also came from what I would say is my way of being in the world, uh, that I truly believe that as much as we may be learning about something, we have a responsibility to learn from them. It's a kind of a life principle of reciprocity. So the lessons from plants really came from as I continued to build my knowledge about plants, asking what do we do with that knowledge? Uh, Certainly I published papers and it's been A great um, contribution to my own career to learn about them, but also it just felt like a great wealth of knowledge that there were some additional implications, some additional ways in which that knowledge could be applied. And one of those was to ask the questions, how was I using that knowledge personally in my own life, but also to ask once I saw saw some benefit from doing that, um, the ways in which we as humans may use such knowledge in collective and communal ways to really think about our place on the planet, the ways in which we engage with each other and the responsibilities we have to each other and also to other organisms that um with whom we share space.
1: And you certainly do a great job introducing us to a bunch of the concepts and connections and and we'll get to some of the the details and the stories that you share. Uh, but from the onset, one of your goals is to increase plant awareness and introduce us to the wisdoms of plants. And I think you do that beautifully well in this book. And so we've got these ideas of phenotypic plasticity, biochemical plasticity, epigenetics, all these kind of Mm -hmm. science-y conversations going on, but then you break them into um, really how they apply to us. Can you talk to us a little bit about this notion that plants exhibit behavior?
0: Yeah. So, you know, one of the ways in which I first got so excited about plants was being uh, becoming more aware of this idea of phenotypic plasticity that plants display. And, you know, that phenotypic plasticity is really differences that you see in what plants look like. Um, the biochemical plasticity are the changes we can't actually see, but that's what they're capable of in terms of doing a metabolism. And I realized um, that that was about the plants being aware of what's going on around them. So when I first decided that I was actually going to have a career committed to biology, I wasn't sure exactly what I would work on. And I spent some time working with many different organisms. I did some work with mammals. Um, I did some ecology work, really assessing what was present, snakes and all of that in a particular environment. But then I took a plant physiology class and myself became really deeply aware of these ideas in which plants have this great plasticity. Or dynamic ways in which they can grow. And many of of us, even if we're not um, practicing plant scientists, have seen this in our homes. We've seen a plant that's growing in our home start to bend towards a window. And whereas we may not recognize that that is one example of phenotypic plasticity or the way the plant's able to change what it looks like um, in response to an environmental cue, Um, many of us will recognize that we need to rotate the plant so that it stops bending towards the window and has a chance to grow back the other direction. And really, that is one of the classic examples of plant awareness. The plants are aware... Of where light is coming from. They need access to that light for photosynthesis. And so they will bend themselves towards that really vital resource to get it. And we see that as a change in their growth a bending versus growing straight. But that kind of plasticity occurs throughout the plant um, life cycle. It occurs in ways that we can't see in terms of plants changing, which proteins are present, which allow them to actually have those kinds of responses of bending or change their ability to metabolize and, and that uh, nutritional Um, abilities. And so I became really fascinated with that because we as humans have some capacity uh, for plasticity, but we don't do anything nearly as cool as change our height or um, the way we bend in response to environmental cues in that way. And so that's one of the things that got me really fascinated with plants. And so many people who grow plants in their homes, I think, likewise have access to observe those kinds of responses. And because I started to understand the underlying biological principles about that, it seemed like a real fascinating way to connect with people who may have relationship with plants to help them understand what's going on, but also the ways in which there are implications about what's going on with plants for our own existence.
1: And and you you nailed it. They It is so cool, the conversations <laughs> yeah. that you bring up in this text and and I mean, humans are cool too, but what yes. what you've discu- discussed in here is that there's so much that can go on and you, and you go to this, this notion of kind of uh, chapter two, I believe is, is friends or foe. And you've kind of got this, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, plants as decision makers and they've, they've often got to make decisions. And, and that's something that dawned on me uh, in, in reading this book is that I'm, Kind of the notion of decision making, and you you lay out a couple of choices that plants have: uh, confront and compete, collaborate, tolerate, or avoid altogether. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Maybe an example of one or two of these choices that plants make.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I do think we often aren't having a deep, uh, a deep awareness that plants are making decisions because we think about decisions we make and those decisions are often in our mind values driven. You know, we spend money on things that are important to us, but if you understand a decision as being aware of what's going on around you, recognizing that there are variable choices, variable options in terms of what can uh, be done in terms of behavior, and then moving towards one, and away from another of those choices, that's a decision. Um, And so plants certainly make decisions. And one of the decisions that plants make For example, is whether if they're in a particular environment and there happens to be in that environment some herbivores, they have to make decisions about how much of their energy goes into continuing to grow versus putting energy into defending against that um, particular threat. And that's known as this growth defense paradigm um, in plant biology. And that's one of the ones that plants are facing almost every day. Um, and, and it's really driven by a similar set of things that motivate our choices. And that's that there's a budget, um, that of energy that plants have, there's a certain amount of energy they have. And if they contribute energy to growing, that energy is no longer available for defense. So it's a critically important decision to ask, do I need to really defend against this particular thing to ward off this kind of temporal threat so that then I can continue to persist and grow at a different time? And I think about that as parallel to the decisions that many humans have to make. Most of us, unless we're Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey or someone have a monthly budget and we have a certain amount of money that we can spend on the things that we need and desire. And we have to make real logical choices about that, and it's a similar kind of the set of molecular decisions that plants are making. In this case, on an energy budget, um, about how much of their energy it's wise to invest in one particular aspect, perhaps growth, versus whether they need to defend.
1: And I, I noted that directly, this financial budget versus energy budget narrative and, and the way you explain it. And you mentioned earlier that you've got some, some family in kind of the, the business world. How mm-hmm. has that, that conversation gone over? Have you seen it work well for them to now understand how plants are, are motivated based on discussing the finance budget?
0: Yeah, you know, I've had some really interesting conversations about ROI and return on investment. Um, And so, you know, some of my family members who are in that aspect now, um, who happen to also have houseplants, when a a new leaf emerges, they think of it as, okay, the plant has invested in this new leaf, and there's going to be a great return on investment. So it's been kind of fun to see some cross fertilization of ideas uh, based on our, our individual wealth of knowledge.
1: Yeah, that, that explanation was great in the text. And so what I, what I see from this is, right, they have these, these choices, these options. And, and where you get to kind of with this is this notion of the importance of, of kind of the establishing of an ecosystem and, and within that ecosystem, multiple choices happening. And then you relay it. And so I'm going to quote here from page 5051 in your text. By studying how plants interact with others, we can see the importance of establishing an ecosystem of support, Talk to me a little bit about this notion of how you take the aspects of ecosystem of plants and then apply it for us as humans.
0: Yeah. So this has been one that's been really powerful for me personally, as well as powerful in the domains in which I work um, professionally, but also some of the engagements that I have um, in kind of social and community context. And it really is arose as kind of a pushing back in ways uh, against the ways in which we primarily operate um, through this individual success lens. And even though the ways in which we have success is rarely as an individual, that's the ways in which we recognize, reward, and promote success. So for example, you know, I mentioned starting out that I'm a professor at Michigan State University. As a part of that work, um, I have the the honor and privilege to lead lead a research group, which at any time has, you know, a fair number of people, students, um, people who have already done their training, uh, working as postdoctoral associates, a number of researchers. Um, we make advances as a group, we, we study collectively, we collaborate. And yet when the papers are published, even if they have multiple names on them, in most cases, it's my career that's advanced. Um, if there are awards that come for the research, they come in my name. So we really do, even though the work is happening as an in, um, a group, it's often in the name of an individual. And so I think too frequently the ways we set up our systems for, you know, rewarding people really focus on that individual success model. Um, but the what we know from nature, we know from if we really look at how our work is done, that it's as a collective. And so I think that, you know, part of really focusing on the ecosystem was to push us towards Understanding that the ways in which we have success, and the, certainly the ways in which we have sustainability, happen through relationship, through engagement, through collectivity, and if we recognize that, it seems to me it's our responsibility then to care for the ecosystem and the entire set of individuals that are a part of that. So, part of really focusing on how plants function through relationship, um, how they collaborate, how they even if they compete, they do it in ways that. Um, are a little bit more wise and recognizing that they're just trying to make sure that they're sustained, not trying to obliterate the other, um, in which in the way sometimes humans, we compete to the death. So the ecosystem focus, I think, is really one of the ways in which I wanted to invite readers to, to embrace the idea, um, to grapple with the idea that we exist as a collective, even though we have globally, but certainly in the United States, this focus on individual ex- success and individual attainment. And so that was really one of the, the, the hopes for that um, part of the, the text was to engage that kind of conundrum.
1: And, and much like yourself, as an academic, I took this in and started framing it in my experiences from an institution like you just mentioned. And so the collegiality aspect and, and those notions were something I started to f- think about in the ecosystem. And, and one question I had is, as your discussion plants and we'll, and we'll get to this because you touch on it in Chapter 2 and then it comes all the way back in the conclusion. Um, as you're discussing the plants functioning, they're making an individual decision, but they're also connected and communicating across kind of the ecosystem and community. Uh, but from an institutional perspective, and you mentioned it, um, the individualized rewards, but we're, we're set up in this hierarchy. And so yes. we you talk a little about leadership later, but how do plants kind of navigate collectively hierarchical, like what is going on in that system? Because the systems we have built, the institutions we have built are very hierarchical in nature.
0: Yes, they certainly are. Um, I think in ways that actually impede our getting to the outcomes that we claim to want. Um, uh, So one of the things that um, I really continue to um, kind of Reflect on about plant communities um, are the the many ways in which they are so dynamic in terms of which may which individual species may be dominant at one moment, but that can shift. And so, in that way, there there can be hierarchies, you know, in plants where. Certainly we know there are certain parts of ecosystems that annual plants can only grow in highly disturbed ecosystems. And once those ecosystems become more um, established, some plants can't grow there. Um, But I look at that as there being shifting hierarchies depending on what the current context is. And I think that part of the problem with the systems that we think about are that there are these static hierarchies. And certainly um, in academia, It's common to know in academia there have been some more discussions about it because of things going on in the national context now around the idea of the importance of tenure versus non-tenure. But we often have these really static hierarchies that you have to be on a particular path to even be considered to have certain leadership roles. And I think that what we see in nature is that while there can be hierarchies, that those shift depending upon um, external context, what's going on in the environment. And I think that's one of the things that I keep coming back to in this book is that we as humans sometimes have um, this ability to disconnect ourselves from understanding how we're impacted by the environment, even though we are. And so we miss the opportunities to have those dynamic shifts in terms of what makes sense for this particular moment, as opposed to having these kind of static, long-term status quo looks at hierarchies, which really do then limit um, us being able to dynamically shift and respond in ways that I think would um, lead to Greater outcomes, certainly better stability um, and 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 so those are some of the things I think about in terms of hierarchy and within that hierarchy,
1: I mean you discuss leadership quite a bit in in the text and and coming from kind of a, a public administration background right I, I had to grapple with this notion of is, is there a difference between a manager and a leader and I, I certainly think that there are separate aspects there and and you and and so there there's this three questions you ask in in earlier in the book, and then come back and really address those latter in the book in terms of a leader that plant plants are have the ability right when, and make decisions whether they're going to thrive or perish, based on kind of knowing who they are, where they are, and, and what um, they're supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. And mm-hmm. you see, I've seen lately a lot of a lot of folks kind of in in that I follow in some of the policy world, but would say say that people go into like running for office before, uh, would rather run for office rather than uh, do the work of, say, heading into therapy or counseling and working on themselves. And yes. and you know this, this reflective space and how important the reflective space is for a leader because, um, and, I, and I'll let you describe it, but you say that first, um, in order for leadership to work well, someone needs to to know those answers, not be seeking them as they're in their leadership role. Yes.
0: So how do we, how do we, what do we learn
1: from plants in that?
0: Yes. I have thought a lot about that because I, I, you know, for, I've, I've been in, um, academia for far too long, maybe (laughs) over 25 years, but I've also done some work in the nonprofit sector. And as I said, I have family members in business and certainly, you know, my deepest experience is with the leaders that I know, but I think too frequently, and it's not an indictment of any individual. I think it's the human condition too frequently. We engage um, in a search for affirmation And I think that certainly leadership can be a big draw for people who are seeking some affirmation that they have contributions to make, that they are making um, good decisions, that leadership can, some people enter that searching for that external affirmation that they are good and worthy and smart enough to be in charge. There are other people who have a sense of vision and things that they think they need to accomplish. And the leadership position becomes... Um, the avenue through which to do that. And I personally think that when I look at the leaders who have really had the greatest impact, these were people who had a determined vision and they were set about trying to build teams to collaborate for that vision and to accomplish that as opposed to really entering it saying, I'm looking for this affirmation that I have something to offer. Um, and so that's the whole sense of, I think that a lot of people do enter leadership asking, am I capable of this? And the, the danger of that is then the decisions that you make become decisions that really are about drawing more affirmation as opposed to uh, birthing and cultivating a vision. Um, and when you know, when I think about lessons that, that come from that, from the plant world, that's the idea that plants really do have an encoded sense of what type of plant they are and what kinds of behaviors uh, would lead to their ability to succeed. And succeed in the biological world is often whether you persist and are able to reproduce the next generation, or you have this kind of short, you're there and you don't get to that point. And for plants, the ability to do that is really having the, the um, internal sensors to know what is available in the external environment and whether the things that are needed for your long-term success are there. And if so, for you to exhibit the behaviors, whether that's making new leaves to be able to conduct photosynthesis and have enough energy to really robustly grow and produce a large amount of seeds. Or if plants are an environment where everything that they need is not there, then they grow rather rapidly and will often transition quickly to make a few seeds just to ensure that they make it to the next generation. And one of the things that I see is that humans, again, often we have this kind of mindset of behaviors that we think we should be doing. And we do those not often checking in enough with the environment about whether those are valuable um, behaviors, whether they're being well received, whether they're resulting in the changes um, that we would intend, and so because we don't do that, we can often persist in behaviors that aren't having um, the the equivalent of reproducing, um, you know, our our best intentions. And so I, I do think that the way part of the reason that we have, in my estimation, um, have some problems in terms of leadership is that. The ways in which we select leaders are often not even, we don't often even ask, at least in my spaces, we rarely ask what their vision is, whether they have the experience and have intentionally prepared themselves to have the skills to carry out that vision and how they're going to assess whether it's successful. Frequently, we look at whether people have had success before. So often if we're looking for someone to lead a department, we look at whether they've been a good professor. And if they've been an excellent professor, we say, well, they'll probably be a good leader of the department. So they become chair of the department. There's two completely different skill sets needed for those, but we often don't adequately assess whether you have what we're going to ask you to do versus whether you've shown success in some other regard. Um, And so I think the ways in which we select leaders um, has set us up. Um, to have some of what I think are um, areas of real growth we can have in terms of leadership, particularly leaders that have a vision and are able to understand how that vision has to happen in, in a particular environment and then have the ability to sense whether that environment is capable of supporting and if not, what changes need to be made.
1: Agreed. Agreed a lot of that is, is tracking with where I kind of have started to navigate the conversation in terms of some of this public administration work versus how, you know, really good expert scientists are trained and, and continuing Mm -hmm. with this frame of leadership, which is, which is a theme continued and, and kind of that you build in in the text, you discuss the dangers of, of what you call imprinting, uh, with regard to leadership. And so tell us a little bit more about kind of how that. Transitions from the plant world to kind of how you uncover that in kind of leadership roles. Do plants imprint?
0: Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. So often when I talk about imprinting, I show a picture of um, uh, ducklings following the mother duck, right? Because that's a common example. Um, Plants certainly imprint in some way. So you mentioned earlier this concept of epigenetics um, and epigenetics is a form of imprinting in a way. So epigenetics is um, if a if a biological organism, a plant is growing in a particular environment, um, they won't change the sequence of the DNA. But they can put markers on the DNA that indicate um, a particular environmental phenomena has happened. So the most common form and most well-known form of epigenetics in plants is that some plants that have to overwinter before they flower, when these plants go through winter, there are uh, markers, which are basically methylation, that are added to the DNA that show that the plant's been exposed to coal. Only if the plant has been exposed to cold will it know it's gone through a winter and therefore when it starts to warm up that it's spring and it should flower. So it's known that some of those markers can be passed from one generation in the seeds of another generation. So I think of that um, as a kind of imprinting, um, right, where there's a, a memory that's passed on about what's gone on. Um, So imprinting can happen in plants, but what plants do that we often don't do when we imprint in our context is that even when you have those markers, that seed, when it emerges, it will um, assess its environment on itself and it will compare what it has assessed with the environment with those um, imprinting markers that came. So there is this recheck in. And I think that when I talk about imprinting in academia, it happens a lot in mentoring. Um, where when we are mentoring a younger generation, a student or junior colleague, we often try to get them to replay the exact steps that we or our colleagues took to have success, as opposed to saying these are the steps that we took, but what is your current plan for you to do? And, um, you know, what are you trying to accomplish in your particular goal? And how do we help you understand the current environment, some experiences from what I learned? And then you figure out what set of those works together for you. We often want them to just completely replay the set of stages we took towards success. And I often say that that goes along with another of what I think of as, a you know, one of the traits of the human condition is that, humans, all of us to some degree, some more than others often function through a kept kind of, um, self-affirmation lens. And so if we've made a set of choices, someone else replaying those choices affirms us. And so often we imprint, we we think we're just giving people good advice, but when we insist that people have to really function through the ways in which we function without checking in with them, without asking them what their current environment is supporting for them, we can really go towards imprinting as opposed to experience sharing um, in hopes of helping them um, think about what's best for them, as opposed to just replaying the choices and decisions that we've made.
1: And this was a really important conversation for for me to hear and and wrestle with in terms of being junior faculty myself, is that I've got students that um, are pretty adamant about not not leaving a a, a, a geographical area. and mm-hmm. and for me, bouncing around from institution to institution to really kind of study under the best and the brightest. Um, it's, it's been a, it's been a transition for me to kind of really try and help and figure out how to support them in the ways that they desire to be supported. Uh, so that was, it was really important to hear that, read that and reflect on that. And so I appreciate you bringing that to the table within this book. And then one other aspect of, of leadership, uh, well, there's two really, but I want to get into this, the, the reflective space that, that we've talked about and, and something on my mind in terms of what I've, you got me really thinking about more is I see the reflective space in terms of of grant funding and you talked a little bit about um, kind of awards but the notion that we have a lot of a lot of competitive grants out there and not as many planning grants and and what would the world look like in terms of collaboration uh, if if we almost forced collaboration before the the more competitive process and and I and granted, planning grants are also a competitive avenue. but to have that space where we create the moment for people to come together uh, and start having conversation, um, that that's something that dawned on me is is why don't we have as many planning grants out there to really give the space, that reflective space you're talking about. And then two, uh, within that, what what would it look like if we had that space, that, that would then maybe force to broaden, and this is a key aspect of your text that I that I hope we can discuss, broaden our uh, as academics and as humans definition of kin. Uh, and so let's mm. let's start with that. Let's start with the definition of kin that you've you've gained insight from with regard to plants. How that applies to us, and then and then maybe we'll apply that to kind of how can we help ourselves broaden
0: that. Yes, yeah. Oh, so the, said so there's so much rich discussion room and what you've just put forward. And I, I really thank you for bringing that um, forward. I think we desperately need um, those spaces where we can reflect and plan. And the ways in which I think that's really connected to the my conceptualization of kinship is that so much of the ways in which we keep ourselves so busy that we don't have time for just the um, collective reflection um, and the conf- collective planning is that we're often in these competitive spaces. Um, and so the person who gets the most grants, the most you know highly uh, impactful grants, the most highly impactful papers, they're the ones who make progress and advance and get all the rewards. And so we're often put backing ourselves into corners where we really prize uh, comp- competition over, over collective. Um, kind of moving forward. And part of that is connected to kin. So, you know, one of the things that's been most fascinating to me is the ways in which kinship shows up in plant biology, other forms of biology and ecology. Um, And it's something I I think many of us don't even think about the idea that a plant has kin, um, but the plant can recognize kin. And uh, one of the phenomenon that we study in my lab is how plants respond to light cues. Um, And it's, it's fascinating that if plants do grow too closely together and their leaves start to overlap, they will start to reorient their growth so that they're not competing with plants for light, which they need for photosynthesis. But what's remarkable is that if you, there are many different studies from many different groups that if you have plants that are related, genetically related growing in that regard, they actually don't, you know, compete as much for trying to move and and maximize their exposure to, space, they will compete to a little bit, but it's tempered when you're related, because there is a biological recognition that if either of those two plants that are related survive, their genetics are carried on. And so there's really this idea that when there's kinship, it may make better sense for us to collaborate and make sure we both uh, survive, as opposed to just ensuring that I completely outgrow you and survive. And the thing that, you know, got me thinking about that is that, Humans are really more biologically related (laughs) across many different groups than two different species of plants or two different other things. But we set up these kind of uh, socially constructed ideas of who's kin um, and we will that depending on if we have some shared socioeconomic status, if we have shared values, then that can allow us to function as kin, even if our biology is less related than my genetic siblings per se. And so I think that too frequently the ways in which we select functional kin actually feeds into competition in terms of um, socioeconomic status or who has access to selective colleges or those kinds of things. So we use kinship often to divide us more than we do to allow us to see ourselves as a collective set of individuals on the planet. And I, I just really wanted to, for, you know, press us to think about the ways in which we're doing that and the ways in which I believe it's linked to some of the greatest challenges of our time. Um I talk about in the book about a number of different challenges. I think of, you know, ones we're dealing with now, climate change. But even since the book came out, you know, we've been dealing with this global pandemic. And I thought how different our outcomes might have been if we had reformulated our our idea of what Ken meant and what it meant to function in ways that support and protect um, us as Ken. I think also Um, Some of the ways and, you know, we were talking earlier about imprinting and the ways in which we support colleagues and whether we collectively collaborate. Um, Those things would be changed if we saw ourselves as connected as kin. One of the examples I have, but this is, again, is a a kind of ways in which we artificially decide who are kin. But there are a lot of, you know, um, I happen to be a member of a research institution where we have a group grant. And so in some ways, the ways in which we interact and support each other in this context may differ from a department where people don't have these group grants because we have this huge financial incentive Um, to provide space for collective reflection um, and collective planning. And so my real challenge for us is what it would look like if we just prioritize some of those things as our human values, as opposed to them only being linked to financial incentives or them only being linked to us being seen as one of the premier research institutes, as opposed to that being a good principle for human engagement wherever we are, including in scientific or academic context.
1: Yes, and and connecting to the the kinship conversation further, it, underlying the diversity, equity, inclusion that you mm-hmm. that you've already brought up is, I mean, you you brought up, and I think is it's one of the best ways I've seen equity framed, uh, is the notion of kind of what we come from in academia, this notion of meritocracy, but in, in looking at how plants thrive, you look at kind of all the conditions you mentioned: droughts, yeah. wildfires, uh, floods. Uh, and then even kind of Chernobyl and 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 radiation and kind of how plants come from that, but the fact that their starting point is different, that narrative really solidified for me this notion of equity uh, and how we engage and how we engage equity across the spectrum, but but also at an institutional level or in academia, based on you know, looking back at plants um, and, and looking at plants. Able to survive in these environments, and we might say, like that's, we might give them kudos for that, but we don't also recognize that their foundation was vastly different, and and yes. maybe there should be a different invitation on the table.
0: Absolutely, I think one of the most transformative um, things that I learned for myself, and has been one of the transform most transformative messages I've been able to share, is how. Earth, it was just earth shaking and mind shattering for me when I realized the power of recognizing that most humans on the planet engage with plants from an expectation that they should grow and just how powerful it is to enter a relationship with the expectation that the other individual should have success. And if you believe that, what it does in terms of transforming how you do indeed look at the environment. So as I say, it's the rare human that doesn't expect that a plant should grow. And if its plant is not growing, the human condition is to ask, what does it need? Or to really recognize that maybe the problem is the caretaker. And that has just really been completely powerful for me. First, recognizing, you know, as a plant biologist to understand what that means, that when you see a plant struggling, you recognize that it really is most likely an environmental Uh, failure, um, that the plant doesn't have access to something it needed. So when I first recognized that, I started looking around and thinking plant biologists should be the best people in community. We should have this collective understanding that our greatest responsibility and privilege is to have stewardship over the environment so that the individuals can grow. And that's exactly, um, I didn't see that widespread um, because plant biologists are in environments like other academicians and we follow the rules of, you know, winner gets all. But I think, you know, just really getting having some time to reflect that on that myself um, and to think about ways to translate that in accessible and powerful ways um, has really been a great privilege. And it really does. You know, I think you you mentioned it. it sometimes it stops people because it's such a simple concept, but it also has the power to transform the ways in which we engage in our environment. Um, and so I think that's been really one of the things that draws me to ask what other simple but powerful lessons are there are there um, because we we do we've had these long histories of believing we're meritocracies but that is not the lived experience of individuals and so recognizing that for me i feel just a real strong personal commitment that you know if i have success as an academician individually i somehow haven't done what i came into this space to do and so these kinds of concepts of challenging us and getting us to think differently and also also, inviting other people to share such sim- simple concepts that they may have from their own um, areas of expertise is one, one of the things that I hope to accomplish.
1: And, and taking it a little bit different direction in terms of kind of how this stuff applies, it's it's scary to me to think about how concepts uh, viewing invasive species, culling, uh, plants, pruning plants apply or translate into society? Is that something that you've you thought about? You engaged?
0: I've thought about it from the context of, um, you know, there's been a lot of focus on cultural change in the past year or two um, related to the pandemic, related to challenges about uh, structural racism in the U.S. and in other places abroad. And part of the challenge when we start to talk about cultural change is that most of of our cultures are very stable and mature and, um, you know, they've been set up to to function in the ways that they have. And so if we really are going to think about what it would mean to change a culture, part of what I've been asking is, do we have to look at the ways that um, really stable ecosystems change in nature? There's often some unintended disturbance, whether that's, you know, natural patterns of weathers. We're seeing forest fires um, across the U.S. There's been flooding. Those are natural kind of nature-driven patterns of disrupt- disruption. Or, um, you know, often if people want to change Um, an ecosystem, there has to be some kind of intentional practices. And so if you look at a lot of indigenous uh, ecosystem-based practices, some of those are intentional disturbances. It's managed fires. It's culling of particular species because you realize you're trying to either push towards some change or or maintain um, a particular thing. And I do think that in our systems, we kind of um, often have a little bit of trepidation of thinking about the idea of intentional disruption. And I think we have to at least look at what we can learn from um, our natural understanding, global understanding, that some of the changes we purport to want in the absence of some kind of intentional intervention or disruption, the process is not going to change or it's going to be very slow. And we've seen that in cases if we look at um, some interventions that have been tried to diversify academia, there's been slow progress despite pouring in lots of money because part of what we've been doing, there is an author named Deborah Rowland. She studies uh, change um, in in leadership, mostly not in academic context, kind of in business context. But she she talks about something uh, layering change onto a system where you're not doing the intentional disruptions to actually look at the structure, but you just want to put on a, a layer of something to look like it's changed. And I think we layer change onto the system quite frequently. Frequently and we're hesitant to think about intentional disruptions. But I think there are lots of examples in nature that when you have stable ecosystems, which many of our spaces are, To see real change in terms of composition and real change in terms of community dynamics, there often has to be some intentional disruption, or there are disruptions like many of us have experienced. COVID has had some really serious impacts on institutions, and it's going to be interesting to see what the responses of those are, whether the responses are try to recover back to our stable systems, or if people will see this very tragic um, event of a global pandemic, even though very tragic, they can look at this disruption and say, since we have to recover, how do we want to recover differently?
1: I think that's a key point there. Um, the, the notion that we are where we are, and we can make decisions to, to go back, or we can, we can use this as an opportunity to take that disruption and, and change forward. Uh, so that yes. that is key insight, and so we're coming to uh, a close here. And I'm really appreciative of your time. This has been re- really fun and engaging. And I didn't see it going kind of institutional conversation, but we really did a good job uh, hashing this out. The the last question I have for you is kind of what are you working on now?
0: So I am. Um, I'm, I've had an opportunity to be invited to do some uh, sh- uh, short pieces of writing related to some of the concepts from this book. Um, those have been pushing me towards exploring some future directions. Um, i'm I'm actively planning what my next book will be. I'm continuing to explore explore some of these um, aspects of of uh, plant- inspired uh, lessons about uh, humans. And um, we'll see where that takes me. But, yeah, I'm doing some short writing and also planning for next next long form.
1: Well, I'm excited to see what comes next. Dr. Montgomery, thank you so much again for joining us. It was a great pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. This was lots of fun for me. And I really appreciate the questions that you ask and the conversation we were able to have. Thank you so very much.